Welcome back, everyone, to the podcast. My name is Bob Kaler, one of the co-hosts of Holy Conversations, and we welcome you to our continuing series as we listen to the talks from the WCA Global Gathering, which took place in Montgomery, Alabama, on May 1st, 2021. We're excited to present this one from Bishop Edward Kigay. Bishop Kigay is the bishop of the Eurasia Episcopal Area in the Northern Europe and Eurasia Central Conference of the United Methodist Church. He gave a marvelous talk about looking ahead. His talk is entitled Vision to Rome and On to Spain, about the Apostle Paul and his aspirations to take the gospel even deeper into the world. You're going to be blessed by this talk. You're also going to hear my co-host, Stephanie Greenwald, introduce Bishop Kagei via video. He joined us via video as well because of COVID, was not able to be there in person. But I hope that you'll give this a listen and be inspired by the great preaching of one of our faithful bishops. It's a great message about continuing the journey. Our next speaker is a leader who has crisscrossed continents and engaged with people in many different cultures and will deliver an address entitled, Vision to Rome and On to Spain, taking the Apostle Paul's aspirations in his letter to the Romans. Bishop Edward Kagei, resident bishop of the Eurasia Episcopal Area in the Northern Europe and Eurasia Central Conference of the United Methodist Church, was born in Alma-Ata, Kazakhstan. Kagei studied hydraulic engineering at Bauman Moscow State Technical University, graduating in 1993. That same year, he began to study at the Moscow United Methodist Theological Seminary. He would go on to receive a Master of Divinity degree from Emory University's Candler School of Theology in Atlanta and a Doctor of Ministry degree in 2010 from Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. He was ordained as a United Methodist elder in 2001. Just before his election to the episcopacy, Kagei was pastor of the Raduga United Methodist Church in Moscow and assistant to the bishop since 2005. Bishop Kagei has a passion for reaching those around the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. Would you join me in welcoming Bishop Edward Kagei? Sisters and brothers, I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is a great honor and privilege for me to share my message with you today as you gather together at the global gathering of Wesleyan Covenant Association, Go Global. I am grateful to Reverend Keith Boyette for the invitation to participate. I wish I could be there with you in person but the pandemic reality is still very hard. So I am grateful for the technology that enables us to stay connected around the world. Let me begin with a story. In 1725, Peter the Great of the Russian Empire had a vision to send ships to the Kamchatka Peninsula, to Russia's far east in order to explore Russian geography and create new maps, learn whether Asia and North America are connected by land, and to explore the western shores of North America. So in 1725, he ordered an expedition led by Vitus Bering. Born in Denmark and trained in the Netherlands, 
Vitus Bering became a respected leader of the Russian fleet. Peter the Great's vision became his vision. He was very enthusiastic to start his voyage and to explore the Kamchatka Peninsula and all the islands around it. So he led two expeditions to the peninsula. During his first expedition, Bering spent two years just traveling by land from St. Petersburg in the west to Akhotsk city in the far east. He had to travel by foot, on horses, on small boats, survive the Siberian winter, and all the challenges of travel of that time. For those of you in America, you might think of Lewis and Clark, except Bering's expedition was just getting started once he reached the Pacific Ocean. His team then needed to build a ship. It took about one and a half year to do so. Finally, Bering and his intrepid companions were able to begin exploring the sea. They discovered that Asia and North America are not connected by land. Today, we know of the Bering Strait, the narrow marine gateway between Russia and North America. In our Google Maps, we can find the Bering Sea and discover that its waters reach the shores of Kamchatka Peninsula and the shores of Alaska. After his first expedition, Bering had to travel back to St. Petersburg and give an extensive report about the benefits of trade with America, the richness of the Siberian land, and his vision for a new expedition to the Kamchatka Peninsula. His vision to explore new lands and seas just got bigger. He already had a plan for his second expedition. Sisters and brothers, when I was reading about Vitus Bering, I couldn't help but think about the Apostle Paul. They both traveled a lot, by foot, horses, and sheep, experienced storms and many challenges. They both had a vision. They both were fully committed and died implementing their vision. One wanted to explore Kamchatka and create new maps. Another wanted to travel to the end of the world to share good news of Jesus Christ. Vision inspires people. It is like a burning bush inside your heart that keeps making your heart strangely warm. It pictures the future that you want to build. Some people are lucky to see their vision become a reality in their lifetime. People like Sergei Karolyov, who built the Soviet Union's space program and then put Yuri Gagarin into outer space, the first human being to leave our planet almost exactly 60 years ago. And the people at NASA who sent Neil Armstrong to the moon. I am inspired by these people. In the early 1990s, I had a vision to learn the English language. I was inspired by an American missionary in Moscow who led a Bible study for us. I dreamt that one day 
I would understand my new American friends without interpreters. Wow! But my English at that time was non-existent. Or maybe just a bit better than Russian President Boris Yeltsin at that time. We had an anecdote about uh, two presidents meeting together, US President Bill Clinton and Russian President Boris Yeltsin. So they meet together and Bill Clinton decided to talk privately with Boris Yeltsin in English without interpreter. So Bill Clinton comes to Boris and says, so Boris, uh, tell me, how is the economy in Russia? If you describe it in one word, and Boris Yeltsin says, good. And then Bill Clinton says, okay, okay, Boris. So what if you describe it in two words? And Boris Yeltsin says, not good. So my English was on a similar level, but I was very motivated to use my gifts and resources to study it day and night. Literally, I memorized English words even in my sleep. Some of my relatives laughed at me as they drank their beer and played the cards. It was tough, but it was my personal vision that became a reality. And I thank God today that I can share the good news of Jesus Christ with you in English. So what is vision? And why is it so important to our Methodist movement both collectively and individually? Based on what I learned from many smart people, let me offer you my current definition of a vision. Vision is a God-given picture of a future that inspires you to use your gifts and resources for its realization. The Apostle Paul had a vision from God to visit Rome and then travel to Spain so he could share the good news of Jesus Christ with people there. He used his gifts and resources to make this vision a reality. He traveled a lot. He wrote letters, he preached the gospel and defended his faith before many. He also faced persecution, false gods, accusations, and death threats. If he had social media, he would have received all the ugly comments we can imagine today. So Paul had a vision to go to Spain. At that time, it was considered to be the end of the known world. In Latin, the end of the world is translated as Finisterre. I am inspired by Apostle Paul and his vision. The Holy Spirit continues to fulfill that vision through us today. Who will go global and make it a reality? In his letter to Romans, Paul wrote, Since I don't have any place to work in these regions anymore, and since I've wanted to come to see you for many years, I'll visit you when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while I'm passing through. And I hope you will send me on my way there after I have first been re-energized by some time in your company. What lessons can we learn from Paul and his vision today? First, Salvation is for all nations, even to the end of the world. Finisterre. 
Sisters and brothers, I am a Methodist Christian today because of many passionate visionaries who believe that salvation is for all people, all nations. 30 years ago, Russia was a pretty uncomfortable place to visit and felt for many like the end of the world. Not enough food in grocery stores, crazy inflations every day, anxiety and chaos, and a toilet paper shortage. I was a college student witnessing the collapse of the Soviet Union and long lines of people standing just to buy basic food. But thanks to many United Methodists from the United States, Europe, Africa, and Korea, we experience God's own power for salvation for all who have faith in God. That power of salvation became evident to us as Methodist Christians share their global vision with us. And God's vision became our own vision. Let us continue to go global and fulfill this vision. Second, we have a vision for the transformation of life. In Romans, Paul writes, the free gift of Christ isn't like Adam's failure. If many people died through what one person did wrong, God's grace is multiplied even more for many people with the gift of the one person, Jesus Christ, that comes through grace. Paul not only preached and taught transformation, he exemplified it. From persecutor of the church to the apostle to the, for the Gentiles, and from a man of one nation to the preacher of good news to the end of the world. The famous Anglican bishop and Pauline theologian Antti Wright lamented one day. He said, wherever St. Paul went, there was a riot. Wherever I go, they serve tea. Sisters and brothers, God has a vision for us transformational leaders to go global. And that means we cannot stay the same anymore. We are in God's mission of transforming life. Third, Jews and Gentiles lived together in the early church. Paul, a Jew, took the gospel to the Gentiles. We must remember the vision that God has for us to share the good news with all people, people beyond the walls of our church. John Wesley was a great example of going outside the walls of the church, ministering to the poor, uneducated, and unchurched. Who are these people for us today? Perhaps immigrant workers, people of another ethnic group or class, a Generation Z, people who are not like us. I had my own negative experience of the Christian church even when I was an atheist. When I was 18 years old, I was searching for meaning in life and tried to understand God. How do you do that? You go to church. I visited several churches in Moscow. Imagine that in several of them, I was told to go away 
because I was not ethnically Russian or Slavic. Not a very good start for the meaning of life. Where do I go then if I am Korean Russian? God had a plan for me and I was invited to the Moscow United Methodist Church. It was a wonderful multicultural community in Christ. This was a church as Paul envisioned it 2,000 years ago. I was blessed to meet people from Russia, North and South Korea, the United States, Liberia, Iran, Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan, all in one church. As I traveled in the Eurasia Episcopal area today, I see God's power for salvation that brings students from Pakistan and India together to worship in our Methodist Church in Kyrgyzstan. It is God's power for salvation that transforms people and brings together Russian and African students in our Methodist churches in Russia. We are truly sisters and brothers in Christ. Let your light shine. Don't let the noise of social media and politics of fear extinguish your light, your friendship, your multicultural community of faith. By living this life together, we make God's global vision a reality. In conclusion, let me say this. Vitus Bering did not stop after his first expedition to the Kamchatka Peninsula. He wanted to go global again, explore the new lands and sea, and make new maps. Before his second expedition, Bering had to spend six years to prepare for his voyage, overcome bureaucracy, and build two ships, which he named St. Peter and St. Paul. Those are cool names. Finally, in 1740, they started to sail into the sea. They experienced storms and fogs, diseases and many challenges of travel. But they would reach Alaska and many new islands, which we can find on our maps today. Vitus Bering died during his second expedition in 1741 on the island, which would later be named after him. His life and his vision inspired thousands of people to explore our world. The Apostle Paul did not stop after his first missionary journey. God's vision was bigger than just going to Cyprus and Asia Minor. He goes on his second missionary journey to Macedonia and Achaia, then a third missionary journey where he spent three years in Ephesus now that's the right discipleship program. And after these extensive journeys, he finally goes to Rome, but not as a free man, but as a prisoner, a prisoner for Christ, the apostle to the Gentiles. Sisters and brothers, God's global vision is so big that God expects one billion Christians today to continue actively sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Together with the Apostle Paul, we can preach and live out these three principles. First, salvation for all nations, 
to the end of the world, Finisterre, second, transformation of life, and third, Jews and Gentiles together in one church. Let us continue with Paul to share God's vision for the whole world. Let us find our Rome and Spain. Finisterre. Let's go global. May God bless you. I am here with Bishop Edward Kigay, and it is a real privilege to be talking to him via Zoom. And Bishop, we were so blessed by what you had to say at the global gathering. And you told us your personal story, but can you tell us a little bit about the, the context of where you're serving? When I heard that you're serving a, a conference that spans 11 time zones, that was mind boggling to me, as I'm sure it is to most of our listeners. So tell us a little bit, little bit about your work and your, your ministry context there. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, greetings, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, well, we have in Eurasia Episcopal area, which I'm responsible for, we have five annual conferences, and they span from uh, Kaliningrad uh, in the west to far east, like Vladivostok and Kamchatka, actually, peninsula, where we uh, want to start new ministries in the east, far east, as we call it. So, and these are most of the countries of the former Soviet Union, uh, if you remember uh Countries like uh, Kazakhstan, Russia, Belarus, Ukraine, Moldova, Kyrgyzstan. So they are all used to be part of the former Soviet Union. Now they're all independent countries. And that's the area which I'm responsible for. How many churches are, are in, that, in that area? Yeah, we have uh, around 100 churches uh, in our area. And uh, all of them are relatively young. Uh, so uh, after this collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, that's when the, fir the first church uh, restarted again. So there was a Methodist church uh, before the revolution, uh, 1917. So even the end of the 19th century. And then the, when the communists came to the power, uh, the church uh, discontinued maybe around 1930s. And then uh, until 1991, when the country became open again. Was there ever a Methodist presence in the former Soviet Union or even before the Soviet Union was formed? Was there a Methodist presence in Eastern Europe uh, at that point? Uh, yes. Well, uh, during Soviet Union, interestingly enough, uh, there was a church in uh, Estonia, in Tallinn, which is a historic uh, ministry, and also in uh, Uzgorod, uh, Western Ukraine, which is close to uh, Slovakian-Hungarian border. So that those churches uh, were able to continue even during Soviet time. Wow. It's amazing to think about that. And so I would imagine there are a lot of different languages you're dealing with as you deal with these churches. Uh, their primary language might be somewhat different. Well, it's an, we are kind of in a transition time because uh, when, you know, when I was uh, younger and grew up in Soviet Union, we all spoke Russian as a primary language like you speak English in America. But after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, each country you know, started to revive their own indigenous culture and languages. <clears throat> so more and more, if you visit Ukraine, you see more and more people speak Ukrainian. Although most people I think would understand Russian, especially you know, older generation. Uh, if you visit Kazakhstan, which is my home country, uh, you, you hear more and more people speak Kazakh language. 
but uh, majority of the older generation would, would speak and understand Russian as well. So we are kind of in that transition. I'm blessed in a way that I can still use Russian and be understood in most places in my area. But I think maybe in a generation or two, uh, the bishop would have to learn many new languages. I would imagine so. And and so do you, I mean, obviously with COVID, that's been difficult, but outside of COVID, do you get a chance to travel to a lot of these churches? Because I would imagine that that racks up what we would call the frequent flyer miles here, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, well, yeah, until, uh, until uh, March of last year, uh, I've been traveling a lot, uh, you know, uh, in my area and internationally, you know, in a month, I would travel maybe three, four times. Yeah, I'm flying a lot because of the distance um, and uh, many different countries. So in our churches are, you know, there are still many places where do, we do not have Methodist presence in Russia and Eurasia. So um, in European part of Russia and Eurasia, we have most of our churches and also in Central Asia. But the whole Siberia, if you look on the map of Russia, the whole Siberia part, we have only a handful of churches there. Uh, and then we have churches in Far East. But Siberia is still not very uh, many churches. And it's not very... Uh, highly populated area also, but, uh, but still uh, geographically, there's uh, so much potential uh, to do mission work. Sounds a lot like the American West here where I'm serving, where we have vast, I mean, our, our annual conference covers four states, which seems like uh, a large geographic area here in the West where there's a lot of empty space. But Siberia right. is a whole nother league of empty space that uh, right. that we, we don't even have a, a concept of. I think uh, a lot pretty... of a lot of forest and snow. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, it, it's it's fascinating to me because we we've had uh, one church I I served had uh, was part of that launching the Russia initiative uh, back in the in the nineties, and then uh, we have a, a partnership with a church in Sibiu, Romania. Uh, with Pastor uh -huh. Christie there, and uh, it, it's really uh, been been amazing to see the bridge taking place between between us. And mm -hmm. and as I think about uh, all those all those connections that we have, obviously cultures different, situations are different. What are some of the issues that face Methodists in your Episcopal area? What what are some mm -hmm. of the things that they're most concerned about? Yeah, we, we are, uh, uh, you know, minority uh, Protestant denomination in Eurasia and in Russia. Uh, and so, uh, you know, many people just have a lot of uh, prejudice and biases. When people don't know who are Methodists or who are Protestants, they think we are a kind of a sect. Uh, and so uh, even before they come to church, they already have a negative connotation. Uh, thinking that we are, uh, you know, we eat people and eat, uh, drink their blood and stuff like that. And so even the Soviet propaganda that we had uh, when I was a little kid, you know, the people would scare us with, uh, with uh, uh, fake things like uh, Baptists, you know, they eat their children. And so uh, I remember growing up thinking Baptists are bad people. Mm. And so uh, same thing, kind of same thing uh, happens today. People just don't know. And so we are living in a kind of a hostile environment where we have, to, uh, we have to prove that we are good people and we do good ministry, which is actually a, a good thing because uh, we are not only to talk, 
but we have to do stuff. And so when we do that and people actually see that, oh, we actually helping the poor, we feed the hungry and, you know, we are uh, ministering to disabled people. So, uh, oh, people think, oh, you know, we are now interested who are these methods. So that's, that gives us, uh, uh, you know, uh, entry point. Are there other uh, Protestant denominations at work in the same area that you can? Yes, with? definitely. De- definitely. The biggest, the largest uh, historically that were still functioning during Soviet time are the Baptist and Pentecostal. Those are two biggest denominations and they have suffered a lot during Soviet time. Uh, they were oppressed and, you know, people were sent to Gulag uh, and uh, because of their faith, people would lose, lose their jobs because they are Christians. And so they really suffered a lot. It sounds to me a lot like Christianity under the Roman Empire, because there's no Christian memory in many of those places in the former Soviet Union. It's quite different than what we have here. I mean, the United States, since since colonization, has always had kind of a Christian memory, at least to some degree. So you're really dealing with a, quite a different environment. And I would well, imagine, um, yeah, I imagine that makes church know, planting interesting, too. That, that would be true to, to a certain degree, because we have a major, uh, I would say, major Christian denomination, Russian Orthodox Church, and it, it's been here for, you know, over a thousand years. So we do have a lot of Christian memory, uh, in a way, in history, but also, you know, the church was also tied together with the, uh, with the Tsar and the monarchy, you know, especially before uh, 1917 uh, revolution. Uh, and then also, also, the, one of the critics of uh, historian, he would say that the Russia was baptized, but was not, uh, was not uh, educated, mm. uh, which, which means that uh, we, we know, we kind of every, if you ask people on the streets, just randomly, you would probably hear 90% people would say they are Christians. But, uh, uh, you know, m- most of them actually do not practice Christian faith. And so uh, that's also the the uh, the difference uh, we have now today people think they are christians but they're not really in practice and so uh, we as protestants we try to emphasize that you know being a christian uh, meaning it's it's an everyday life you know it's not just something you do on sunday it's not something you do as a tradition or uh, you know wear a, a little cross on your neck or because your parents were, were believers that doesn't count uh, it's something that you do, uh, you follow Jesus every day. And so that actually, uh, actually, you know, many people uh, realize that, oh, they are not ready for that. It, there's a price to pay. And, uh, and I think that's a good thing because people, I mean, good thing that people realize that, you know, following Jesus is not something easy. It's, it's a difficult thing to do, especially in the hostile environment. And uh, you know, and the government, unfortunately, with uh, new laws and restrictions, uh, they don't help uh, churches to, to grow. <laughs> yeah, maybe I should have spoken and said more of a Protestant memory. We sort of have that Protestant work ethic here, and people kind of have mm-hmm. that echo. But but yeah, Eastern Orthodoxy certainly has been been huge. And uh, but but Protestantism being fairly uh sort of on the outs with with the main state religion there for and then that's of course right. during the Soviet Union not not being really present at all so that's uh that's really uh, an amazing kind of 
situation that you have to find yourself in and, and to minister within and to plant churches within. So it's exciting to see how, how that's, that's happening there. As you look ahead, and you were talking about vision, and it was mm-hmm. a really compelling vision to hear you talk about Vetus Bering, which was a story I was not familiar with. Uh, we, we don't hear much about Russian explorers. Uh, so <laughs> it was really good to, to hear that story, which to think about walking from St. Petersburg to, to, the, to, to uh, essentially the end of the earth uh, almost to, to begin that and thinking about vision. I love the way you tied that to the Apostle Paul. So when, when you think about that, um, what kind of vision do you see for the new Methodism? I know you are a, a leading bishop in the midst of this. How do you, how do you envision the Global Methodist Church uh, impacting your area and other places around the world? Yes. Uh, well, I, I see the, the, the future Methodism I see it uh, more. I would say, uh, what's what's that word in English? I forgot, but it's uh, it's more flexible. I would say uh, there is a word I forgot uh, that Baird describes this, uh, but uh, nimble uh, is that? Uh, that's a good. Yeah, yeah. that's that's yeah. yeah yeah. So uh, I see this uh, as a more nimble uh, vision because you know we have a we have a wonderful DNA. I think as a Methodist movement where we are. Uh, you know, we are focused on mission work. We are always focused on the wor- world being my parish to go global. Uh, we are always experimenting and trying uh, new things, you know, innovative things. Uh, and, uh, but I think in many ways, the structure that we have built, it's, it's kind of like a Matrix movie. I don't know if you remember. It's like, uh, it's like we created a Matrix and now Matrix owns us. And uh, and you know uses our energy to to feed itself, and that's what that's sometimes how I feel. And it's not you know uh, all it's not all is negative, but some things needs to be changed. And uh, and I'm always upset. You know I've been trained as an engineer, and I always upset when people say the system works that way and we cannot change it. And I'm always upset about that because because the system is created by us by people. You know, if we create a system, then we can change the system or we can build a new system. And so uh, in a way, you know, we how can we be more contextual and, and yet be uh, globally connected? I think that would be the crucial point for me as a as a central conference bishop, you know, because I hear a lot of rhetoric that, you know, oh, we are too Americanized or too American centered, uh, but it continues to be that way. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm not. Uh, I'm not, you know, I don't want to criticize my American sisters and brothers, but it's a historically historical development that we need to acknowledge. But in, in the same time, you know, if there are uh, things that we can change and reform and transform, you know, uh, we should do it, you know, and, and the faster we do it, the, the, the more effective our mission work will be uh, in different parts of the world. It's exciting to hear you say that and also convicting because I do think you're right that that we do have sort of an American centric focus on so many things that happen. And I, I think one of the things we've talked about a lot in the WCA Council was how we really authentically become a global church and have those kinds of global partnerships that connect across across those lines. 
so that so that we're not as unfamiliar with with the situation in Eurasia and in other places, because that tends to be a mission that we send things to rather than someone we necessarily work hand in hand with. So it's exciting to have you as a, as a leader in the midst of this. I've just been really inspired by by what you've had to say uh, at the gathering and here. It's the first time I've had a chance to hear you speak. And I know you sit in the Council of Bishops, and it probably feels like a lonely place at times, I would imagine. Well, I mean, Council of Bishops, uh, these are all gifted people that are elected by our church, but we do have different opinions. And, you know, that's the, again, that's the reality that, uh, you know, we are leaders of the church, but we are a conciliary body. We are not, uh, we cannot decide for certain things because it's only the general conference can decide. And so that's again the how the system works uh, in a way, and uh, if we if we want to change it, we should change it, you know. Uh, uh, and 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 then again, if if uh, if some some bishops break break the uh, the rules in some parts of the world, you know, it's only that jurisdiction that can uh, deal with that. I, I cannot uh, have a influence on that, and vice versa. And so, is that a good system or not? Uh, you know, it's it's only the the recent development and events that happened with, in terms of in connection with human sexuality that uh, brought us to this realization that some things just you know cannot be handled properly, in my opinion. Uh, and you know, bishops, some bishops choose to not to follow the book of discipline, and they are still active. You know. Yeah, that that's. Uh... An important point. Well, I, I know as I was listening to you and, and as we've been talking, I think, man, I really look forward to serving with Bishop Kagei in the, in the new church. That's exciting to me. And, um, and, and so as you, as you think about the future and you think about people who might be listening to this and we have an audience that spans the world in many ways, what kind of encouragement might you offer to those who are waiting for the new global Methodist church? Because it feels like we're in exile and kind of waiting for a long period of time. How are you encouraging people in your area? How might you encourage us in our waiting? Yes. Well, I, th I think, I think, uh, and I, you know, speaking also to myself, I think we do not have to wait uh, to do the mission work. You know, we do not have to wait for the new organization to emerge in order to uh, share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so uh, I know it's a pandemic time. It's difficult now for many people, especially in a culture like mine, where we are, you know, more of an oral culture than, uh, uh, you know, than electronically through electronic means and written culture. So, uh, but in a way, uh, what I'm hearing in my area is that people, some some people don't like online experience, but some people are new now to church because uh, they have joined online, you know, because it's it's safer, so to speak, you know, from your couch, you don't have to come and be with people in the church. Maybe they are strange to you, but, you know, why not listening to this uh, interesting pastor online and hear what he says? And so some people join and actually became part of small groups. Now what I'm, uh, the reports I'm receiving, I'm telling people, you know, this is the mission field. You know, you, you become more comfortable with online, with Zoom. You know, I don't like to preach to my uh, smartphone in my empty room in my home, but I have to do it because, that the way that's the way I reach people, even though I cannot travel. And so uh, I just want to encourage people to continue the 
to be mission minded and to uh, to use new ways of uh, you know of uh, of sharing the gospel. I think Billy Graham would have dreamed about this opportunity because mm. he had to hire you know big stadiums and big television screens and satellites. But now, you know, everyone is evangelist from their own home. You know, if you have a group, if you have a you have connection, you can do it. And so you don't have to wait for uh, Global Methodist Church to be registered as a legal entity uh, or for the General Conference uh, in 2022. And uh, who knows, maybe it's going to be postponed again. But, uh, you know, Jesus wants to save uh, souls of the people right now. So I just want to encourage you, have hope, have patience. You know, I, I am also, uh, I, I want the General Conference to happen and, and have the decision that can move us forward. But also, uh, you know, I can do mission work uh, right here, right now uh, in my area, in my city, and hopefully with vaccination, uh, be travel more often again. In your, in your global gathering talk, one of, the, one of the images that struck me the most was that when Vetus Berry made it to the coast, he, he didn't stop. He had to build, he built a boat. <laughs> he right. built a boat from scratch and kept going. And, and that spoke to me powerfully of what you've just said, which is we, we, we can't just find this to be a barrier, like we've reached the shore and we have to wait now for someone else to build us a boat. It's time to start hammering nails, right? This is, right. This is part of the deal. Yeah. Paul didn't stop. Uh, imagine John Wesley with social media. That, that's kind of a, an amazing thought to think about. So Bishop, this has been a great conversation. Any last words you'd like to give for us before we before we wrap up? Well, I, you know, as I have mentioned in my uh, sermon on the global gathering, I think if if we can have you know if we continue to have this vision, because vision inspires people, and that's something we do as leaders of the church, you know, and and uh, you know people may lose may lose patience, may get upset, but we are uh, the people who are you know, have to communicate the vision again and again, and, and also make steps to uh, make it a reality. And that's, I think, that what uh, distinguishes, you know, the, the real leaders uh, from just the ones who, uh, who like theories. And so we are in action, we do it, but we also continue to, uh, to give people hope and, uh, and, and repeat the vision, because that's, uh, you know, that's what inspires us. It's, it's like a it's like I often use the analogy of a, of a family. You know, when I was uh, when I was uh, dating with my uh, wife uh, to be, you know, we all we talked about the future. You know, the the the, the kids we want to have, the home we want to build, or you know, the the work we want to do. It's all about the future. You never talk about the past. Uh, you you talk about the future, and that inspires you. And you build a family, and you you know, you go together and, and that's just a wonderful life when you have friends and sisters and brothers together uh, that have the same vision and the dream of the future Methodist movement. Um, and then you work together and it becomes a reality step by step. Man, that's exciting. And uh, that's, that's what, you know, gives meaning to your life. Bishop, you are inspiring, and we, we do thank you for taking the time to spend some time with us. Uh, we look forward to, to being under your leadership in the new church. This is uh, an exciting day, and thank you for your, for your vision. I've been thinking about it ever since. We're talking now. It's, 
it's late May. Uh, we talked about this uh, at Global Gathering. We heard you at Global Gathering earlier in the month that I haven't stopped thinking about it. So thank you again for, for spending some time with us. And thank you very much and blessings to you. Thanks for joining us. And as always, you can leave us your questions and comments at podcast at wesleyancovenant.org via email, or you can follow us on Twitter at WCAPod. You can also find out more about the Wesleyan Covenant Association by going to our website at wesleyancovenant.org. We encourage you to leave a review for Holy Conversations on your favorite podcast platform that does help drive more traffic to the site and let others know about what you're hearing on the podcast. We're so glad you've joined us. May God bless you this week as we go forth and serve him well. We'll see you next time.